What is autism? Why are autistic women and girls less likely to receive a diagnosis? And what does the science really say about the underlying causes of autism? I'm Anna Machen, and I'm an evolutionary anthropologist. In this series from the Bertarelli Foundation, I'm going behind the scenes of some of the most cutting-edge neuroscience research to explore our brains, from before birth to after death. And this week, we're looking at the neuroscience and psychology of autism. And that was when I first started to realise that I was seen as different. A remarkably large proportion of women presenting with anorexia nervosa do appear to meet criteria for, for autism. So autistic women are more prone to experience this higher emotional than cognitive empathy. This is how we're wired. If you're not autistic and haven't spent much time with autistic people, there are many stereotypes you might believe about how autistic people think and behave or what they are able or not able to do. The reality is that the way autism presents in individuals is hugely, as the scientists like to say, heterogeneous. That is to say, no two autistic people are alike. From personality traits to how their autistic traits manifest themselves, just as no two non-autistic people are alike. As famous autistic researcher Dr Stephen Shaw put it, when you meet one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. With that in mind, I'd like to introduce you to, well, one person. I'm Lab, I'm 19 years old and I am autistic. Lab loves her dog. He is my favourite person. <laughs> He's my favourite thing, really. She's also a published children's author, after being inspired by a Douglas Adams book. There was just one throwaway line about your brain being used to store penguins. And me and my dad always referred to how when your brain is being really busy and you can't focus, it's because your penguins have gotten out of their cupboards and they were just running around causing mayhem. So I turned it into a story and I illustrated it and published it. Lab was diagnosed with autism just before she turned 15. And the process wasn't as straightforward as you might hope. It was noticed very early on. I was noticed to be falling behind socially and not moving on from certain stages of development when I was in preschool. But it was just trusted that the system would work it out. There were quite a few things that went wrong in that process, like the handoff between preschool and then to primary school, them going, oh, primary school will have more resources, they'll sort it out. And then I moved schools and it, again, it was, oh, the new school will sort it out. And then it was, oh, secondary school will have more resources to sort it out. And along the way, I got the diagnosis of anxiety. And that just was like, oh, well, you're diagnosed now, so we don't need to take it any further. Lab's experience is unfortunately more common than you might think. And so that's what we're exploring this week. From recent studies into the causes and presentations of autism to why many autistic women and girls have been left behind by the systems in place that were supposed to help them. We'll hear more from Lab later. But first, what actually is autism? It sounds like a simple question, but scientists and doctors' interpretation of autism has changed dramatically over the years. To understand more, I headed to the home of Will Mandy. Hello. A clinical psychologist and autism researcher at University College London. 
the story of autism in the 1990s was of a huge increase in the estimated prevalence. So I, which is to say a huge increase in how common people thought autism was. So, you know, in the 70s, there was this idea that maybe three per 10,000 children might be autistic. You know, so it's the sort of thing that if you're a GP, you'd see once or twice in a career. These days, we think it's more like 150 per 10,000. And one of the things that drove that big increase in prevalence was a growing awareness that people who had normal range IQs, who were verbally fluent, you know, who were in mainstream schools, in universities, in workplaces, could be autistic. So I think it's that group have been very, very influential in articulating their experiences, their rights, what they need to change. I also think that social media has played a huge role in this. Uh, You know, I myself have been genuinely shaped as a researcher by conversations that I might have on Twitter with, with autistic people, the way in which... I think about autism, the way in which I talk about autism, the language in which I talk about autism has been shaped, amongst other things, by the kind of very lively discourses that go on in social media amongst autistic people and between autistic and and non-autistic people. But that must be wonderful as a researcher, because I think sometimes with research, we sort of sit in our labs and we don't really connect necessarily with the people who our research is going to affect. It totally does. Yeah. You know, we have no blood test for autism. We have no brain scan for autism. It's not something that you can actually see or touch. And yet, of course, we want to know who's autistic and who isn't for all sorts of reasons. And so what people have done is said, OK, we can't actually see the thing itself, but we could see its manifestations. So we do have a fairly good agreement about a kind of a set of observable behaviours or reportable experiences that indicate that someone's autistic. There's two types of autistic characteristic that we look for and that's fundamental to the definition. The first concerns social relating, and this idea that autistic people have a style of social relating that, according to non-autistic people, is atypical, and it's perhaps less back and forth, if you like. And then there's also a set of autistic characteristics that are to do with flexibility, So we also define autism in terms of not appreciating sudden changes and really valuing predictability in the environment. And then another part of that is an unusual style of sensory processing. So a tendency, let's say, for visual, auditory, tactile inputs to sort of experience those in ways that to non-autistic people are atypical. And quite commonly, that might be what people call a hypersensitivity. So a really high sensitivity to sensory input but also sometimes it can involve hyposensitivity low sensitivity so you know a classic example of that might be an autistic person who just does not feel the cold you know and you sometimes will meet autistic people who just don't experience it and might be walking around in shirts and a t-shirt when there's a when there's a frost out importantly although the behavior of autistic people can appear unusual or hard to interpret to non-autistic people it works both ways That is to say, the behaviour of non-autistic people can also seem pretty unusual to those who are autistic. Both groups can struggle to understand each other, but ultimately, one group is much more affected by that divide. And increasingly, when we think of the, the many challenges that autistic people face, I think of it not as a direct consequence of autistic impairments, but rather 
as a reflection of a, of a misfit between the person and the environment, and really a reflection of the fact that autistic people spend most of their lives in environments that were designed by and for non-autistic people, and which are often unaccommodating and sometimes downright hostile to autistic people. For Lab, those challenges first started to be apparent when she was very young. The first few social differences that were flagged was at preschool when children started to move on to playing together, kind of, you know, like mums and dads and those more group play. I was still stuck on parallel play where I didn't want to go away and be on my own, but I didn't know how to integrate into a set game. I just wanted to be with people but doing my own thing and that was the first thing that was noted as me getting stuck on a developmental stage and not progressing. Once that gap started to grow it it started to get bigger and bigger and I did progress but the gap was already too big that I wasn't catching up and I remember when I was in uh, primary school I had a next door neighbour and we had a joint friend and the three of us would play together at break time and I remember the first time I kind of noticing feeling excluded and feeling different was when Robin and Meg would have the opportunity to play together at the weekend and I'd see Meg's car on the driveway and know oh they must be in the garden playing but I wasn't invited or can I don't didn't know this at the time because I was six years old, but I've since found out that um, my mum was trying to arrange play dates for the three of us and Robin and Meg's parents didn't want me joining in because they were worried I was going to drag them behind as well. And that was when I first started to realise that I was seen as different, which then started to make me think that I must be broken and there must be something wrong for people to be treating me this way. I don't think they were mistreating me. I just couldn't understand why, so I thought it must be because I'm broken. And that went on to the anxiety diagnosis when I tried to take my life at seven years old because I just couldn't imagine a way for me to fit and to not be broken. So I tried to throw myself out my bedroom window and I was diagnosed as being anxious. Hearing Lab's story is heartbreaking. And unfortunately, that initial misdiagnosis that Lab endured is not uncommon. Though hopefully, things are changing. When I was first working at Great Ormond Street, we would see young women in our clinic. And initially, we as a team would think, she's not autistic. She doesn't fit our view of, of or our understanding of what autism is. And these were often girls or young women, they're normally presenting sort of just after that transition to secondary school, who'd really been round the houses clinically, you know, so they, they were having difficulties in their lives, often really struggling with school, struggling with anxiety. And a number of different explanations had tended to be offered by professionals, often around, oh, she's got social anxiety or she, she's you know, depressed or she, if you like, you know, almost viewed through a lens of gender and, and people were attributing conditions that in their minds were more associated with, with girls and with boys. And what we found was that as we actually spent more time with these girls, we began to understand that actually they were autistic. It just looked different to our kind of template of autism. And it wasn't just the clinic Will was working at. 
people all over started trying to understand why it was that girls and women were either taking years longer than their male counterparts to be diagnosed or were flying under the diagnostic radar altogether. And what many people came up with, as Will told me, is the idea that a person's sex or gender can influence the ways in which their autism manifests and presents itself. So clinically you might see that as girls being more likely to have a best friend, more likely to be really interested in the social world at school, the kind of maybe the social hierarchy or the way that the kind of social setup works. And you can kind of see how that, you know, if you held that slightly old-fashioned stereotype of autistic people that they're just not interested in the social world, you could see how that could confuse you. You know, if you took your daughter to the GP and you said, you know, she's really anxious, she struggles with change, but she does have one best friend who she sticks to like glue throughout school, that could sort of put you off the scent, if you like. Another interesting difference is that autistic people often have what are called in the diagnostic manuals focused interests, which I prefer to call fascinations, that often make them real experts in that topic and also give them a lot of pleasure and and give them an identity. And what is becoming clear is that the fascinations, the focused interests of autistic boys tend to look a little bit more strikingly autistic and unusual than do the, the fascinations of autistic girls. So, you know, you're more likely to have the autistic boy who is obsessed with, you know, the Jubilee line or 50p coins, you know, things that just jump out at you as being unusual and probably characteristic of autism. So it's very common for autistic girls to, be, to really love animals, for example. So again, if you go to your GP and say, my daughter's struggling at school and she really loves dogs, I mean, that doesn't jump out at you necessarily as potentially being autistic. The last point I thought I'd just make is about social camouflaging. So this is this idea that many autistic people actually invest a lot of energy and time in effectively pretending not to be autistic in social settings. And that is generally driven by, yes, on one hand, pragmatism. You know, it helps, for example, if you're in a job interview or you're meeting new people. But also, you know, the autistic people find themselves in these environments that aren't well suited to them. They're often bullied, treated with hostility, rejected as a result. And so many decide to camouflage, to pretend not to be autistic in order to try and manage that. And what we found is that autistic girls and women are somewhat more likely to camouflage and possibly also somewhat more likely to be quite effective at camouflaging than are autistic boys and men. And so I think that's another big factor that leads to these delays in diagnosis or indeed to autistic women just being missed altogether. My thought was then, surely that must have an impact on your mental health. If you're having to monitor constantly what you're doing and to see whether you're fitting in. I mean, are there particular mental health conditions that are regularly found alongside autism? So if you ask autistic people how much you camouflage and you also give them questionnaires about their anxiety and their depression, you will find an association. Now, it's early days and we need more work in that area, but it seems to be very, very plausible for the reasons you say that camouflaging actually is a risk factor for mental health problems in autistic people. There was a landmark study, I think it was published 2012, where they had a community sample of autistic kids. So these were not kids who were presenting at a clinic because they necessarily had problems. They were just autistic kids out there, I think it was in South London in the community, and they assessed their mental health. And they found that 70% of those young people met criteria for at least one additional like psychiatric mental health condition, and 40% met criteria for two or more. 
And that is true across the lifespan. So at incredibly high rates of mental health problems amongst autistic adults. And also, it's recently become clear that we find high rates of suicidality and indeed high suicide risk amongst autistic adults as well. So people have woken up to the fact that really there's an autism mental health crisis, I would say, which can be expressed by the paradox that autistic people have a very high chance of developing mental health problems and a very low chance of getting effective help for those mental health problems. And that has certainly been the case for life. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but my mental health has been crap <laughs> um, my entire life. I've really struggled with my mental health. I still do. I get very focused and obsessed on my thought processes and analysing the real world to a point where I can't move past whatever thing I'm focusing on. I do think that mental health is always going to go hand in hand being autistic because the world isn't meant for neurodiversity it is built around neurotypical structures which means it's always going to be a struggle for a neurodivergent mind because they have to find their own way in order to make it work will explained that the most common mental health conditions that autistic people will be faced with are depression and anxiety but interestingly, it's come to light that there is also a strong association between autism and eating disorders. So I think it was back in the 80s, there was someone called Chris Gilberg, who's a, a, a clinician and professor over in Sweden. And he sort of wrote this anecdotal report of some young women with eating disorders that he'd worked with, with anorexia and Vosa, who actually he believed had an undiagnosed underlying autistic condition. And him and his colleagues ended up doing a bunch of studies called the, the, the Gothenburg studies, where they followed this cohort of young people who'd been diagnosed with anorexia nervosa, almost all women. I think it was 49 out of 51 were, were young women and assess them at various time points, including to see if they are autistic. And the conclusion they came to was that about a quarter of these young people, mostly young women, were, were autistic, which is an incredibly high rate. You know, if you think of these were verbally fluent women, you know, who you would expect, you know, less than a third of a percent to, to be autistic, according to sort of current prevalence estimates. And interestingly, those findings were initially met with quite a lot of scepticism. And there was good reason for that, actually, which was that there are psychological effects of starvation. And some of these effects mimic autism. So people who are starved often become a bit less flexible in their thinking. They can become much more focused on specific topics. And there are also changes to social cognition that occur to people who are starved. So the argument went... You know, Gilberg and colleagues are, are labelling these women as autistic, whereas actually they're just mislabeling the kind of symptoms of being very anxious and being starved as being autistic. Now, lots of people have followed up on that research and have tried to come up with research designs that kind of get round the problem of starvation or sort of control for it or manage it in some way. And what's striking is that those studies are still very, very consistent in showing a remarkably large proportion of women presenting with anorexia nervosa do appear to meet criteria for, for autism. So you know, I would personally at this moment in time hang my hat on the kind of 25% figure. What that means in real terms is that if you think of any eating disorder service, one in four of the clients might be autistic, which could have huge consequences for how those patients should be treated. What we found is that 
about 90% of autistic women with eating disorders, they present with the eating disorder first and the autism diagnosis comes after. And we've also found that there's on average a nine-year gap between getting your anorexia diagnosis and your autism wow. diagnosis. So that's a long time a a long spent time. in services, not being well understood. And it matters because what the evidence is showing us is that outcomes for anorexia nervosa, they can be poor. You know, it's, it's often considered to be, you know, a particularly dangerous psychiatric condition because the effects of starvation and so on. But it seems that autistic women have worse outcomes even by the standards of, of non-autistic women with, with, with anorexia nervosa on average because i'm not saying that every you know everybody with anorexia nervosa will have a bad outcome I'm not saying that at all we also know that services often are just really hard to access so lots of stories of people struggling to eat for example in the dining room where it's you know really brightly lit where you're not allowed to always sit in the same place every time or where you're expected to eat an unrealistic range of foods if you're an autistic person, all sorts of things that basically are just problems that, that block treatment and potential for successful treatment and really just reflect the fact that there's not knowledge that the individual is autistic and there's not knowledge in the team about how to support autistic people. And then I think anorexia nervosa, by definition, if you look in the diagnostic manuals, it's saying that people with anorexia nervosa are restricting their eating, uh, you know, maybe exercising excessively as well, because of body image concerns, because they have weight and shape concerns. And what has been really telling, I think, in our research is that many autistic women with that diagnosis do not appear to have weight and shape concerns. They are not restricting their eating because they are really invested in having a thin body. It's actually, it seems much more about using starvation almost as a form of dampening down very difficult emotions. Right. Uh, and also, you know, that feeling of control. Beyond understanding the different ways that autism can manifest, another area of research that has received a lot of attention over the years is what the mechanism behind autism is. That is what causes someone to be autistic? Well, again, the answer isn't straightforward. Our producer Eva is here to explain. When it comes to why some people are autistic and others aren't, there have been a lot of false and downright harmful theories over the years. You've probably heard of the MMR vaccine hoax, for example, which led to some people wrongly believing that the MMR vaccine causes autism. This has been roundly disproven time and time again. And another early and completely false theory centred on the idea that having an insufficiently affectionate mother made you autistic, which is simply not true. What the science really shows is that your DNA, your genes, seem to have the biggest influence on whether or not you're autistic, and even to some extent the level of autistic traits that you have. But it's not as straightforward as having an autism gene. Researchers have found hundreds of genes that can be linked to autism. So, now some scientists believe that many common variants of genes are operating in a kind of complex cocktail to produce autism in a given individual, as well as there being a few much rarer genes that can have a strong effect on their own. Some of these genes are involved in how nerve cells communicate, and others control the expression of other genes, so it's very varied. And it's also not all genetics. 
many people could have some of these genes and not be autistic. And for about 10 to 20% of autistic people, scientists can't find a genetic cause at all. When you consider this level of genetic variation with the fact that there's huge variation in the way autism itself presents, it's no wonder some scientists have started referring to autisms rather than just autism. One of the core manifestations of autism, as Will described, is a different way of socialising and relating to other people than neurotypical people. I feel like interpreting other people's thought processes don't come naturally to me, so I need to think about it to work it out. And when I was younger, I'd get stuck on my point of view and couldn't get further. And as I've gotten older, I analyse my thought process, try and work out what other people are thinking and then try and come to a solution where I can either meet people halfway or just accept that this isn't for me and that's okay. Being able to imagine what someone else might be thinking, as Lab described, as well as sense others' emotions, is called empathy. It's something that many autistic people have difficulty with and so has been the focus of research over the years. However... Like with all research in autism, the picture is complicated. As I heard from Dr. Florina Uzovovsky of Ben-Gurion University. Started off the field thinking that autistic people have no empathy at all because they don't understand others and so they don't relate, they don't feel for others. And then as research sort of matures, started looking at empathy and the different aspects of empathy and really differentiating between cognitive empathy, which is the ability to understand what another person is feeling or thinking, and emotional empathy, which is the ability to share in those emotions, suddenly we see, okay, so it's not so clear. And actually, some autistic people show no deficit as compared to neurotypical controls in some studies. So there's a huge variation. So cognitive empathy is being able to pick up what someone else is feeling. But emotional empathy is... If I see somebody crying, do I feel sad for them? Do I have this emotional connection? And... For autistic people, it seems that the emotional empathy is not only intact, but a lot of the times, some autistic people, they, they say, it's a huge experience for me. It's overwhelming. When I perceive someone experiencing an emotion, I feel it to a huge extent, and so much so that it can sometimes overwhelm me. So it's not that I don't feel empathy. Maybe sometimes I feel too much empathy. What we found was that when you look at the relationship between emotional and cognitive empathy, and you control for overall levels of empathy, we see that having higher emotional than cognitive empathy predicts autistic traits in typical individuals and also an autism diagnosis. We see it for the most part characterizing women. So autistic women are more prone to experience this higher emotional than cognitive empathy, this equilibrium. Having this combination between emotional and cognitive empathy that really raises our ability to predict autism in a person. Wow. So what you're saying is if you, without knowing whether somebody was autistic or not, if you measured it and you got this amazing emotional or uh, empathy, which was greater than the cognitive empathy, you're saying that could be predictive of that person being autistic? Yes. In our studies, that's what we see. Wow. Okay. The idea that actually you would predict somebody who's autistic with something that we considered once autistic people didn't have is, is actually astonishing. It completely turns everything on its head. I think so. I think it reflects our difficulty in really understanding what it means to be autistic. I mean, we also think that it relates to how we 
may think of intervention and alleviate some of the distress and social difficulties that people experience. For example, if you know that the problem is not that that person doesn't have empathy, it's that there's a difficulty in regulating the emotional empathy response, then you might intervene in that level and, and help that person regulate that response instead of just maybe, you know, teaching, teaching how to behave in certain social situations. And for Florina, when doing these studies, it's crucial to communicate directly with the individuals you are trying to learn from. In our study of adolescence, another study that we did, we saw how important it is to really ask autistic people what they feel and what they think, because we compared uh, reports of parents and reports of adolescents. And we saw, wow, parents, there are a lot of things that they honestly get wrong. I mean, Sometimes the experience, and we, we know that from neurotypical adolescents, of course, we're not as accurate in understanding adolescents' inner world as we are at understanding children's inner world, our own child. But there are also some possibly biases or some differences in the way parents of autistic children report on their inner experiences that seem at odds with the way they report about themselves. And there's a question about sort of what is the actual experience, in my opinion, relying solely on parental reports or on the point of view of one informant, the parent, the teacher, we're going to be missing out on a lot, a lot of the people we are trying to understand and help. One thing that Will is pretty clear on is that more opportunities for young people to learn about autism and their autism diagnosis is really important. We did a study a few years back in, in a clinic I was working in where we actually followed up young people who'd been diagnosed in our service. And we wanted to understand what they thought about their autism diagnosis. Did they find it useful, etc. And we were surprised by the findings, which was that actually most of the young people we spoke to knew very little about their autism diagnosis and it seemed to be of very little value to them if I'm to be honest you know it was a real learning point for us about how we needed to improve our practice and what we realized was that whilst we were doing a good assessment and writing a good report and spending time with the parents we hadn't done enough to help the young person understand what we were telling them understand what the diagnosis meant and to sort of take it in and digest it so that it became a sort of a part of them that was useful and constructive and helped them take on a more positive understanding of themselves. And that led us into designing a group intervention that we called Pegasus, a psychoeducational group, where we would get uh, autistic kids together aged 8 to 14. So we had quite a wide age band, which actually worked really well because it was kind of, it was nice how like the older kids would be the sort of elder statesmen of the group and would have lots of wisdom to impart to the, to the younger kids. And it worked really nicely. And we just spent time thinking with, with these young people, you know, what is autism? But what, what is your autism? I mean, I think it was a mark of how much psychoeducation was needed and had been lacking was one incident where you know at the beginning of sessions we would ask the young people in our groups you know what would you like to know about autism we'd you know write a list up on a flip chart of what it was and one boy put his hand up you know he'd been diagnosed several months ago uh, as autistic put his hand up and his question was can autism kill you oh gosh yeah you know so poor lad you know he just he, he didn't he'd, he'd been given this months, label yeah. he carried it for months you know and, and actually we were then able to do work with him saying 
well, obviously, obviously it can't, but also it, it, it can be, a, uh, you know, an asset and it can be you know, all these great things about you that, that you value and people value can be part of being autistic. Yeah, because I think sometimes with a diagnosis, I, I have experience with this in another area, I think sometimes we don't help the child understand that diagnosis, but also work out where that sits in their identity. So do they want autism to be their identity or is it just part of who they are? And actually, do they not want to be identified like that? And I think that's a real individual choice, isn't it? That do you want to really own this or actually is it a part of your identity, but maybe the bigger part of your identity is you love football or or whatever. And it's actually about helping the child make that, that transition into who they want to be, really. Totally agree. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way of putting it. And you know, and it's an ongoing conversation. You know, a child who's diagnosed at 13 might feel, actually, this is the, absolutely the last thing I want, you know, is, is a label that marks me out as, as unusual or whatever. And actually, maybe a few years later, they might start to engage with it and, and feel it's right for them. And, but I, I do think you're right that identity is such a key concept here. And, and the sort of the way in which that, that diagnosis of autism is or isn't integrated in a helpful and constructive way in somebody's identity can have a huge impact, actually, on their, on their lives. And for Lab, joining a youth group is when her understanding of herself and her mental health took a turn for the better. That youth group completely changed my life. I'd just been diagnosed and... I was quite stuck in the thought process with my new label of, well, this is it then. Um, I now know why I'm broken and I'm just going to be like this forever. And um, I'm never going to be able to get on the same level as everyone because um, this is the way I am. And then I went to this youth group and I walked in and people were displaying the same kind of body language and uh, speech patterns as me. And I was like, oh my goodness, these are all people and they're all happy and they're all interacting and they're all doing their own thing and they are all like me. And I loved my time there. I went on to work there. I met my first girlfriend there and it was my absolute lifeline where I could just go and take down all the mask and all the facade that I had to put on all day to not be excluded, put them all off and just relax. And I could get the interaction that I craved so deeply without having to be someone else to get that interaction. Despite the many challenges that autistic people can face, for some, receiving an autism diagnosis provides a great sense of relief and a new way of reframing the struggles that may have experienced in their life. And hopefully, with more research and greater awareness, we can create a society that ensures autistic people receive the support and acceptance that they deserve. Thank you so much to Lab, Will Mandy and Florina Uzovovsky for talking to me for this episode. We're back in a few weeks to explore a topic close to my heart, the neuroscience of love. In the meantime, join us in two weeks for another one of our focus episodes where Eva's looking at how sleep relates to autism. I'm Anna Machen and this is How We're Wired. How We're Wired is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. It's produced by Eva Higginbotham and executive produced by Neil Cowling and Michaela Hallam. Subscribe or follow now for free so you never miss an episode. <laughs>